You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Good. Man, I know I say it every week, this side of the room. Every single week. Y'all always light it up. Guys, I make fun of you every week. I need you to talk to me over here, okay? I need this. I really do. Uh, It's really, really good to see you guys uh, this morning. If you're a guest with us, my name is Michael Bailey. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown Fellowship. Uh, I'm pumped to be with you guys as I get to serve you and open up God's Word together as we sort of dive into it to be more molded and made into the image of His Son, Jesus. Uh, It's actually been a hot minute since I've preached, so... Let's just buckle up, see where this thing goes, all right? Uh, You guys know I'm a little bit prone to be long-winded. Hopefully, I won't do that to you too much this morning. But I got a lot of pent-up preaching in me today, so we're going to see how things fly, all right? Uh, If you're just joining us, we we started a new series last week that we're calling uh, In Columbia As It Is in heaven. And basically, we took that language from the way that Jesus teaches his followers to pray, uh, that they would pray that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And genuinely, this is our prayer for our community. This is what we want to see happen in the Columbia area. This is what we want to see happen here in Lexington more and more, that day by day, it would be a little bit more like heaven. And our aim with this series was to talk just very frankly about our strategy on how we as a church intend to get there. Really more how God intends to take his church to get us there. And real simply, we're trying to look at our strategy. And our strategy, like we said last week, is Jesus's strategy. And Jesus's strategy is you right? It's you. His strategy for the world, for his message of the kingdom to go to the world, for Columbia and Lexington and the world to become a little bit more like heaven is his people. The way we said it last week was that we are not after eye-popping services or eye-popping sermons, but what we are really after is eye-popping people. And for us, that means people who follow Jesus together to grow more and more like him such that our lives are marked by the same compelling nature that his life was marked by. And so what we're doing is we're unpacking what this means for us. This sermon series, like Brandon mentioned earlier, is following along with our covenant practices on our missionary member covenant. And for us, it's not an exhaustive list of all the things that followers of Jesus do, uh, but for us, it serves as like a baseline of here is basically the type of people we are trying to become. And so each week we are working through one of these practices one by one together. And I'm excited to get into our first one this morning. We're going to start this journey in John chapter 15 verses 1 through 11. If you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there, that'd be great. Uh, If you don't have a Bible at all, uh, not even an app on your phone, there's some Bibles located underneath the seats that you're sitting on. Uh, If you don't even have a Bible at home, I just want to go ahead and say, we would love for you to take that with you. We we want that to be our gift to you. Uh, But John 15 verses 1 through 11 is where we're going to be. What I'd like to do is I'm going to read it uh, and then I'm going to pray and then we're just going to get down to business. All right, let's pray. All right, let's read. Uh, Verse 1. You know, sometimes you can't put the cart before the horse. Uh, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
These things I have spoken to you, that, your, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, God, as we dive into your word this morning, uh, I just want to ask that your spirit uh, would be with us and lead us. We know, God, that uh, the work of shaping and transforming us into the image of your son, Jesus, of us becoming more like you, of us uh, trusting you and having zeal and affection for you, that all of these are things that we cannot conjure up on our own, but we need the spirit to do it. And I just want to ask this morning that you would, uh, that as we dive into uh, these words that you spoke to your disciples that we would become very aware that these are words that you are speaking to us as well, and they have meaning and purpose in our lives today. And I pray that you would just breathe all of that to life and that you'd help us to see um, for the first time, for the thousandth time, or even just uh, in a little bit more detail uh, what you have for us here. We need you. We love you. We're grateful for your love and your mercy to us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, so this is actually one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. I love this text because there is so much here. I love to preach this text. That's why I made the joke earlier about we might go a little bit long because I just get caught up in all the things that Jesus is talking about here. I mean, he's covering a ton of ground. He's making connections all over the place. He's talking about our joy and obedience and his word and prayer and fruitfulness. He's talking about his presence and nearness to his people. He's talking about how we glorify God. And he's talking about false disciples and their judgment and our inability and his sufficiency and even more than that. I mean, it's just an absolutely loaded 11 verses of scripture. But what I want to do this morning is I actually want to draw out for you the idea that Jesus basically weaves throughout the whole thing. And that's this. Jesus' call for his people to abide. Jesus' call for his people, his disciples, to abide. Now, That word abide in the Greek means to remain or to make your home in, right? And Jesus uses it 10 times in this little chunk of teaching over and over and over again. Abide, abide, abide. Remain, remain, remain. Make your home in, make your home in, make your home in. Make your home in Jesus, in his word and in his teachings and in his love or the way that I prefer to say it, to be in all moments and in all things with Jesus, to live in Jesus and to have Jesus live in you. And to be clear, Jesus is not advocating some sort of retreat away from the world, but rather learning to always be in two places at once. This is what he's after for his people, being in two places at once. Here's what I mean. So, so eating your sausage and eggs in the morning, or let's be real, grabbing that Pop-Tart as you rush out the door, right? Doing that and being with Jesus at the same time. On your morning commute into downtown, stuck in traffic because malfunction junction, and with Jesus. Sending email and with Jesus. Changing diapers and with Jesus. Jesus, with a cup of coffee and a friend, and with Jesus. Picking the kids up from school, and with Jesus. Always in all things with Jesus. Throughout Christian history, this practice has been called all kinds of different things, but my personal favorite is from the medieval Parisian monk, a guy known as Brother Lawrence. Uh, he dedicated his life to this idea of abiding, uh, and he called, he called this way of living Practicing the presence of God. Practicing the presence of God. In his own words, this is what he says about it. He says, We should fix ourselves firmly in the presence of God by conversing all the time with him. We should feed our soul with a lofty conception of God and from that derive great joy in being his. We should put life in our faith. We should give ourselves Utterly to God in pure abandonment in temporal, so ordinary earthly things and spiritual matters alike and find contentment in the doing of his will, whether he takes us through sufferings or consolations. 
In other words, what he's saying here is that abiding is fixing ourselves firmly in his presence and truth and the doing of his will. This is the life of a disciple of Jesus. Now, before we get too far into what abiding means and how followers of Jesus do it, I want to start with a foundational claim for your life, okay? Foundational claim for your life. Your life is meant to bear fruit. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you follow Jesus, your life is meant to bear fruit. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Simply put, God intends for God's people to be fruitful. He intends for you to lead a fruitful life. If you're a believer in Jesus, your life is meant to be of a certain quality and character that is different than who you were before you knew Christ and different from the rest of the world around you. Now, to be very, very clear, we are not talking about promotions and big bank accounts and the white picket fence and the 2.5 kids, okay? That's, that's certainly a type of fruitfulness, but that is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about fruit born out of a connection with him, fruit that comes from the true vine. So like you get oranges from an orange tree and apples from an apple tree, it's the same with Christ. The fruit Jesus is talking about is a life that looks like his, That's what you get when you are connected to the true vine. The Bible calls these things the fruit of the Spirit. This is how it says it in Galatians 5, 19 through 23. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. These are the things that Christ intends to work in us. That we would be a people marked by the character and nature of God. Known for our self-sacrificial love Joy in all things, peace, patience or forbearance, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. So instead of lives marked by an inability to say no to ourselves, unable to drink responsibly or unable to say no to sexual immorality in whatever form it may take, whether it be porn or sleeping around or whatever, unable to control your temper when your spouse does that thing that annoys you for the thousandth time, instead of that, You become a person who can remain under control no matter what life is throwing at you. When you used to not be able to be in the same room as somebody who hurt your feelings, when somebody who was there who offended you or held a belief or an opinion different from your own, when you used to be somebody who would name call and belittle those who were different from you or a person who always had relationships characterized by drama and conflict, in Christ, you now possess an ability to be patient and kind, and gentle towards your opponents, and sincerely love and bless everyone around you, no matter how wrong or misguided or hurtful they might actually be. Whereas the constant chaos of life and the uncertainty of the future used to cause anxiety and fear to well up inside of you and control how you think and how you act, perhaps worry over how your children are going to turn out, or whether or not you're going to have enough in the bank account this month, you become a non-anxious presence in this world, operating with a peace, no matter how crazy the circumstances may seem, and a person who has joy even when the bottom is dropping out in your life. This is the life Jesus has for you. This is the life that Jesus wants for you and has designed you for and doesn't that sound amazing like doesn't that just sound absolutely wonderful like who in the room right now doesn't want that like if you raise your hand I'm calling bull all right like just straight bull Uh, absolutely not like we all want that non-anxious presence sign me up right 
But it also sounds a little bit impossible, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit far-fetched, like we can't ever get there. I mean, like, I got three kids under five. Peace and patience aren't even in my hemisphere, right? Or I got a job that I hate, and the people that I work with are really incompetent, and not losing my temper? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Or just the simple fact that we're all having to learn whether or not we can actually be a healthy human and have an iPhone, right? Like, I mean, it's a real thing. Like, how can we have self-control when there is a world of possibility in our pocket? It's hard. It's a real question. And so you may be looking at your life and thinking, okay, I am nowhere near that. I am nowhere near that. But I would say that's actually what makes Jesus' teaching here really, really good news for you. When Jesus says he is the true vine, he is saying what is impossible for you on your own is not impossible when you are connected to me. What is impossible for you in your own strength is not impossible when you are connected to the vine. He says in verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The word translated here as clean in English is a pretty brilliant word that Jesus uses. It's the word katharos. And on one layer, it means to physically clean something, to, to purify it or to make it ready for use, like cleaning off your cutting surface when you're preparing dinner. In this context, it connects with the idea of cleaning the branches off a vine in order that it would bear the most fruit. But it also has another ethical layer to it as well. It means to make something blameless or innocent or unstained by sin. And so he's saying, because of the word that I have spoken to you, because of the gospel of the kingdom that my life, death, and resurrection has come to bring you, because I am the true vine, I have cleaned you. And because I have cleaned you, you are now ready to bear fruit if you abide in me. And this is really where this whole conversation about becoming eye-popping people really has to begin. It's that it is not something that we do on our own by our own strength, but something that God does in us as we live in him. And I bring this up because many of us approach the Christian life all kinds of backwards. Just absolutely backwards. Many of us think that becoming a Christian is about cleaning myself up and trying my best to muster up this fruit on my own to make God a little less angry with us. That I was on a bad path and I got myself off that bad path and now I'm trying to walk on the right path so that God is cool with me. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That is not how any of this works. The good news of the gospel." The word of Jesus that makes us clean is that we are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. That you could not do what you needed to do to save yourself. But Jesus has done it for you. That you couldn't do what you needed to do, but Jesus did what you needed. The only way for you to really become a Christian is not to say, I'm going to live a good life, but to say, I can't, and I haven't, and God, I need for you to do for me what I couldn't do on my own. And so this whole journey to become the type of people who make Columbia a little bit more like heaven, it's not something that we just go out and do, like, okay, I'm going to wake up tomorrow, and I'm going to be more compelling. It's what I'm going to do. Listen, that'll last like a week. Maybe two tops if you're really type A, right? It's just not going to happen. Rather, it's something that God does in us as we follow these verses here and make our home in him. And so the question that we have to ask then is how? How do we abide? How do we as a people make our home in Jesus? Well, first it starts with faith. We trust that Jesus is the hero that we need. We trust that he lived the life that I couldn't live and died the death for sin that I deserve and rose to new life to secure for me eternal life with him forever. It starts there. And then we center every aspect of our life on his presence, truth, and word. We center everything on who he is and what he says. Verse seven. If you abide in me, 
and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. We center our life around who he is, the things he says, and his presence with us. Rooting the foundation of your life in all the truth and promises, hope, commands, and person of God. Dallas Willard, uh, who is a true treasure when it comes to spiritual formation, wrote this. He said, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in this practicing the presence of God is to direct and then redirect our minds constantly to him. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former one as we take intentional steps in keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as a needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward being. That's a good quote. I love that language. A directing and redirecting of our minds to the realities and presence of Jesus such that over time, he becomes our true north. A daily dwelling on the fact that the truest true thing about you is not your sin, is not your struggles, is not your anxiety or your job or your money or anything else. The truest true thing about you is that you are a person who is loved and saved by God through Christ. It is the truest thing about you. That during our commutes or the morning diaper change, redirecting our minds to the reality that these ordinary moments are not insignificant, but God through the Holy Spirit is there with us. And that is his gift to us through Christ. That our food and our meals aren't just food and meals, but tangible evidences of God's provision for us and foretastes of the kingdom and the feast that the scriptures say is to come. In the moments when sin is tempting or perhaps even prevailing, that Jesus has paid it all and there is nothing left that you owe. That your sins, no matter how great or prevalent they may be, have been paid for and cleansed by the blood of Christ. And that though they once separated you from Christ, now in him, God is your father who loves you cares for you, wants good for you, will never abandon you or forsake you, and will always be there when you call. For the moments when life feels out of control and uncertain, returning to the promises of God in Christ that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise you. And if death was not too big for him, then whatever you are going through isn't too big for him either. And this moment of panic or anxiety can now become for you a prompt to pray, to come to the God who is with us always for comfort, care, and security. You want patience? You want crazy patience? Fix your mind on God's patience for you. You want joy? Reflect on the unbounding love, grace, and mercy of God towards you in Christ. Christ, you want peace? Draw your soul back to the comfort of who God is, that he is working all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's where those things will be found. Abiding is making our home in these realities, that these things aren't just fluff that we tell ourselves, but they are stone cold realities that Jesus has accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection. This is the truest true stuff about our existence. And allowing these realities to become the bedrock 
of our souls to become the foundation for our life. Abiding with Christ means that we take the things that Christ says to heart. And let me make a caveat here. And that includes his commands. That includes the things he calls us to. This is something I try to say to you very, very often. But Jesus' commands are for you. I don't know if you know that or not. Jesus' commands are for you. Notice he does not say, if you keep my commandments, you will receive my love, right? That his love is contingent on whether or not we obey. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You will experience the fullness of my love. You will be connected to the vine. My commands are for your good. They are for your good. Obedience is not us trying to earn something from God. It's a display of our trust in God. That we really believe God is who he says he is so we know he's got our best interest in mind. That's why I listen to him, because of who he is. And obedience is not God trying to take something from us, but it's God trying to give something to us for us to experience the fullness of his joy and love. So, for example, when his word says things like, you need to forgive your brother 70 times, 7 times, he's telling you that to free you. He's telling you that for your good. He's telling you that to free you from the prison of bitterness that you've made for yourself. Because you recognize that, right? That's what bitterness is. It's a self-made prison. You control it. Someone not apologizing or making it up to you has no bearing on whether or not you actually forgive them. When he tells you that it's better to give than to receive and that you can't serve both God and money, he's telling you that to free you. He's not telling you that because he wants to take from you. He's telling you that to give you something, to free you from the pain and turmoil that come with the jealousy and covetousness of wanting more and more stuff. He's telling you to help you see, he's telling you that to help you see that all this stuff that we spend our lives chasing, the car, the house, the big bank account, it's all going to wind up in a dump one day. And if you focus all of your energy on it now, He's telling us this to free us up because we're going to constantly find ourselves dissatisfied and jealous instead of at peace and having joy in every circumstance. He commands these things to us for our good. And the thing many of us need to understand is that if we want to experience the life of Jesus, we need to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Specifically meaning we need to trust his word and live it. So I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, so I love to go to the gym. I like to work out. It's a thing. I think it feels good. It's wonderful, all that. Uh, I have a buddy that I used to work out with who was a physical trainer. And in short, he was how you say shredded, right? Like his muscles had muscles, if that's even a thing. Like he was that type of dude. And we would work out and I would think, man, I want to be like you. I, I want to be like you. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I know the dad bod thing is like really in right now, but... I would really love for my traps to have traps, right? Like, that would be amazing. And so one day I asked him, I was like, hey, man, so how can I get this to look like that? How can, how can we make that a reality? And his response was, oh, man, easy. I got you, bro. We can do this real, real simple. Here's what we're going to do. First, we need to sit down and hammer out a really good food plan for you. We need to look at your caloric intake, and we're probably going to need to up it a little bit because you're not getting enough, and we really need to pack that stuff in if you're going to get some more muscle on you. Next, we need to get you in here two times a day, bare minimum five days a week. And for the record, we're going to go hard. You need to expect to be in here for about an hour, hour and a half minimum twice a day. That's where it's going to be. And then we're going to start looking at supplements. I'll probably get you on a pre-workout and a post-workout and a morning and evening routine. And I just looked at him and I was like, um, I was just thinking maybe some more curls. I don't know. You see, I wanted the results, right? But I didn't want what it took to get there. I wanted the fruitfulness of a bodybuilder, but I didn't want to have to adopt the lifestyle of a bodybuilder. If I wanted the results, the truth was, is I was going to have to listen and apply the things that my physical trainer buddy had to say. And the same is true for abiding in Jesus. If we want to experience the life and the fruit of our Savior, then we're going to have to listen and apply the things that he says.
We're going to have to. That's how it works. So let's talk about that. With all of that in mind, let's talk about your Monday. Let's talk about what happens when you leave here. How do we cultivate this lifestyle of abiding when we leave this place? Historically, followers of Jesus have cultivated the abiding life through the spiritual disciplines of meditating on Scripture and prayer, or as some call it, a personal devotional life. On our member covenant, it reads like this, that abiding in Jesus connects us to him as the source of life as he produces fruit in us. Therefore, I commit to the consistent disciplines of meditating on God's word and prayer. Here's all this means, that as a people, if we want to cultivate the abiding life, we put ourselves in positions to soak up his words and presence. We read and we pray. Now listen, this is all over the place in Scripture. The Bible constantly affirms to us the importance of these two practices in the life of a believer. I'm going to rally some off for you real quick. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work, that the Word of God is breathed out and useful for us being molded and made into the image of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Paul again writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Don't be anxious, but in everything. Newsflash, everything means everything. In everything, come before God in prayer. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law of the Lord, the word of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More, de- more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. This is the word of God and prayer to us. And consistent practices of meditating on the scriptures and prayer, here's what they do. They tune us to God throughout our days. That is what they do. They are, to put it bluntly, the secret sauce to the Christian life, okay? The scriptures and prayer are where we meet with the Lord and where he meets with us. They are the means by which we cultivate the life that abides. And so if you want to abide, if you want to be with Jesus, there is no shortcut outside of his word and prayer in your life. There is no shortcut. They are essential. Now, I know a good number of people who get hung up on these practices because they feel like in one way or another that they don't know where to start or that engaging in this feels really, really daunting, right? Like I had one guy tell me once that the reason he didn't pray often was because he felt really foolish and like he was going to mess it up. I had another guy tell me that, man, look, the Bible is a big book, and I'm a really slow reader, so this, this is just a problem. And often what many do as a result is they just kind of give up before they even get started. And I know that might be some of us in the room, and so this morning I just want to help us with that a little bit. First of all, let me just say this to lay the groundwork. The goal of these practices is not simply knowledge, but relationship and transformation. The reason Christians read the Bible, study the Bible, soak in God's word, and pray is not that we gain knowledge, but that we gain a person, right? That we gain God, that we get to be with him and be changed by him. Here's the deal. Knowledge does not necessarily mean transformation. Now, it can, but not always, right? We're talking about truth that gets into your heart such that it transforms the way that you go about your life. 
This is why we use the language of meditating on God's word and not merely reading or memorizing. Like reading and memorizing certainly play parts, but they aren't the end goal. We want to meditate on God's word such that it affects who we are. I'll give you an example of this. When I got married, uh, I knew in my mind that as a Christian, I should seek to grow in humility. I knew that the Bible said that love covers a multitude of sins and that I should be quick to forgive others because of how Jesus has forgiven me. But the truth is, is that when I first got married, all I could focus on was Lauren's sin and weakness with very little consideration of my own. And to be quite honest, I made us miserable. I made us absolutely miserable because I was nitpicking every little thing she was doing. And someone finally had to say to me, hey man, you know what the problem is? The problem is, is all of your attention is on her and her weaknesses and you're not focusing on any of your own crap. That's what's really, what's really going on with you. And you, you need to focus on your own stuff before you start nitpicking her to death. You aren't actually walking in forgiveness or repentance at all. And I was just like, gulp, got me. (laughs) In other words, the scripture was in my head. Like, I knew the right stuff, but it had not made its way to my heart. And I was not abiding in Jesus' words. And I'll say this, some of the most arrogant people you will ever meet know a lot of things about the Bible. But all of that information is in their heads and it has not flooded their hearts such that it affects the way that they live. God's word is not actually abiding in them and they are not abiding in Jesus. And I don't want that for you. That is not our goal. Our goal is to be with and be changed by God, not just know things about him. Secondly, uh, you're right. The Bible is a really big book. In fact, it's a library of 66 books written in all kinds of different genres from cultures vastly different from our own. And that, truthfully, that is really tough to discern through, especially if you're just getting started. And so I just want to say, I just want to give you some practical things here. Listen, it's tough to get started. So start with what we can know. Start with the teachings of Jesus. Pick one of the four biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and start there. Want something even easier? Start with the reading plan that we create for you for each of our series. It's on our website. Just check that out. Begin there. And look, choose a format that works for you. Here's what I mean. Are you a bad reader? Do words on a page just have this ability to make you drowsy? I have great news for you. You can listen to the Bible. Shocking. I know. You can listen to the Bible. There are tons of Bible apps available in all the app stores that come with the scriptures in audio form. Listen, you have the gift of living in the 21st century world with unmitigated access to God's word in whatever format works for you. Perhaps some of you are like I used to be and you think, man, bro, do audiobooks even count? Yeah. They totally count, okay? Like an audiobook is still a book. And for what it's worth, Listening to, God, I mean, listening to God's word was all that the majority of Jesus' followers could do until the 16th century, okay? And we don't need to put out here as a standard of discipleship something that people who couldn't read couldn't do, right? People who didn't have access to the written word couldn't do, right? For most of Christian history, they had to hear the word proclaimed. They had to hear the word taught. For the record, that's what, the majority, uh, what a lot of Christians across the globe still have to do, all right? That is the majority of church history had to hear it auditorially. What's the word? Auditorially, is that right? Sorry, it's a little moment. I don't know the word. But yeah, we had to listen to it, right? But here's what I'd say. Whether you read or listen to it, whatever it may be, there are three things that as a follower of Jesus you are aiming to do as you engage in this practice, okay? Three things, and I want you to write these down. The first is this. Read or listen, all right? Read or Or listen. Simple enough. All I mean by this is just open it up and engage with it. That's what we're aiming to do. We're aiming to engage with God in his word. So just to get under it, right? Just to get in front of it. Paying attention to the context of the passage. As well as things that stand out to us. Whether that be because of conviction or challenge or confusion. But goal number one is just to be with the word. It's just to be with the things that God says. Two, 
Reflect on it. Read it and reflect on it. Consider what it means. When we open up God's word, we want to consider what it means, what it tells us about God, what it tells us about ourselves, what it instructs us to do. A really quick way to tell if you've been able to do this is can you summarize it in your own words? Can you hear it or read it and then summarize what's being taught there in your own words? And then three, we want to respond to it. The third thing we're trying to do when we get in God's word is respond to it. And by that I mean asking the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is present with us when we do this. Asking the Holy Spirit, how does this need to affect my life today? How does this need to shape and change me? What should this change about what I believe or what I say or what I do? Asking God to reaffirm his presence and power with us as we read. To say to God, God, help me to see what you have for me here. That today might be different. That tomorrow might be different. That 10 years from now might be different and more aligned with who you are. So I'll tell you how this looks for me. All right, and I, look, I'm not telling you this uh, to tell you that you need to do what I do. I just, I want to give you some ideas. I just want to kind of throw out for you, hey, here's how I do this, so that maybe you can take that and be like, hey, you know what, I'm going to take that idea, that's going to work really well in my context, or give you some fresh ideas of your own so that you can partake in these practices together. So for me, this is how I do it. For me, I start with the mornings, all right? Uh, it helps that I am the only morning person in my family, all right? Uh, but if I wasn't, I would still do this. I would still get up in the mornings because one, for me, mornings are really the only time where there is any quiet in my house. Parents, I imagine that that is true for you as well, that early in the morning is the only time when stuff's not crazy. For two, for me, mornings set the tone for the rest of my day. For me, what happens in the morning kind of affects what happens the rest of the day. If it's a bad morning, tends to be a bad day. If it's a good morning, at least I got a better shot, right? At least I got a better shot. So I start in the mornings. For me, I start, I have a basic reading plan. Uh, it's just something that I found online through blueletterbible.org, and it's a chronological through the Bible every year plan. And this sort of serves as my base, that if I have nowhere else to go in the Word, I know I'm going here. And here's why I picked that one. What it does for me is it gives me the grand narrative of Scripture as it happens chronologically. So, for example, as I'm reading about the Jewish exile in 2 Kings one day, the next I'll be in Jeremiah hearing the prophetic words to those people at that time. It helps me see the context of what's going on, of when were these words spoken and to whom were they spoken to and how do those connections get made. It helps me not take things out of context and uh, apply things that don't need to be applied, but apply them well, right? And then I have auxiliary stuff that I'm reading too. Generally, outside of my Bible plan, I also have something else that I'm picking apart too, uh, just on a devotional level. So for right now, for me, it's currently Matthew's biography of Jesus' life. And I'm just daily trying to soak in that as well as I learn to become more like my rabbi, to see the things he lived, the things he taught, how, how he worked, and try to emulate my life after that. And as I read, I'm praying. And this whole thing is prayer and scripture, scripture and prayer, all the way through. Like it's not one or the other, it's both at the same time. I'm asking God while I read, God, what is here? What do you have for me here? What is this about and what is it saying to me? What is it saying to me about you? What is it saying to me about myself? And asking God, God, how does this connect with me and my world today? How does this need to shape and change me? I also ask God, God, is there anybody out there who needs to hear this? Is there somebody in my life, whether in my life group or in my family or my friends, who needs the encouragement or the challenge here? Can you just bring that to my mind as we're in this space? How can I join you? Can you help me be aware of what you're doing around me and how I can join you in it? And generally, sometimes before, sometimes after I read, I just take time uh, to just pray, to just be in a little bit of quiet and simply have some relational time where I connect with God, to reorient my soul to, the real, to his reality that I live in. Usually the first words out of my mouth are, God, help me. Generally, the first words I say, God, I need you today. And at times, this is all over the place. I pray what's on my mind. 
I pray the Lord's prayer. I pray what I'm feeling. I pray my desires to feel differently. I pray for our church. I pray for my family. I pray for my life group and my kids almost every single day. If I'm praying and I feel like I get stuck, this is going to be really type A for a lot of you guys. I have a spreadsheet, right, where I list out all things that I've prayed for in the past. And so if I get stuck, I just go to my spreadsheet and be like, oh, yeah, let's pray for that today. It's really helpful because it also helps me see, oh, man, I prayed for this thing six months ago. God answered that prayer. God, like, actually did that. And it reinforces the fact that I live in a reality in which God is living and active. It also helps me connect the things that I've been reading to things that I've been praying for as well. And I'll be honest with you, I try to do all of these things out loud. And I know that might feel like really weird for some of you, but for me, speaking it, letting it be auditory, ha, there's the word, uh, it helps me focus. It helps me zero in on what's actually happening. And I try to carry it with me through the day. So I revisit the insights from the morning at the end of my lunch break and before I go to bed. And I try to make prayer a constant, all right, which really is easier said than done. But generally it works like this. I try to let my emotional responses become a trigger to pray, become a prompt to pray. So do I start to feel anxious? Instead of that becoming the dominant feeling that ruins my day, I use it as an invitation to go to God who can actually do something about whatever I'm anxious about. Am I angry? Instead of turning that into vindictive fantasies that I'll get lost in for like an hour, which, confession, this is a safe place, that's what I do sometimes. I get to go to God. It's an invitation for me to go to God and say, God, I am angry, and I know at the end of the day, vengeance is yours, and I need to see things the way that you see them. Can you help me in this space? And listen, lest all of that sound really put together to you, it's really messy. Like, it's really, really messy. The only thing clean about it is that I have the discipline to do it. Very often, it's a battle. And I'm fighting sleepiness and the allure of distraction, whether it be my mind running off into the thoughts of the day or just the desire to pull up my phone and check out for a little bit. And hear me on this. There is a reason why Lawrence called this practicing the presence because that's exactly what it takes. It takes practice. Just like anything you aim to become competent in in life, being with Jesus takes effort. You don't just pick up a guitar one day and become John Mayer. That's not how that works. That takes time. And in the same way, you don't just decide to pray one day and become a person who prays without ceasing. It takes a little bit of dedicated energy and effort. And listen, I've been in this game long enough to know that when I start talking about meditating on God's word and prayer, that little cynic in your head starts up saying, oh, I don't know if I can do this, Bailey. I'm really busy. My life is really chaotic. I got little kids. I got a job where I'm working 80 hours a week. Like this, this just sounds like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can actually engage in this. And listen, this is what I said to you. You're right. You're busy. And I don't know what normalizing these things in your life to enable you to abide needs to look like. But one thing I can tell you is that if you do it, you will not regret it. And I know there's pressure, and pressure can crush, but pressure also creates diamonds. Listen to Jesus' words. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. For the record, that's a promise. That's a promise. A guarantee that abiding is for your joy, your long-term joy. You are very busy, but I would argue that most of us are way too busy to not take Jesus up on these promises. I read a really convicting quote about this uh, earlier this week from pastor and author Tim Keller, who wrote a book on prayer, and in, in it, he talks about an illustration from his wife, and here's, here's what she says. She says, if the doctor said you had a fatal condition, and unless you take this medicine every night at 11 p.m., you will be dead by the morning, she said you would never miss. You would never say, I was too tired. You would never say, oh, I just didn't get to it, or I was watching a movie and it didn't leave time. You would never do that. If there's anything that you know you have to do, you do it. 
And so when people ask, how am I going to get to prayer? How am I going to deal with distractions? I respond with, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you don't believe you need prayer. And that is a theological, spiritual problem. And there is nothing I can do except tell you that you need to get your heart straight and your mind straight on that. And I fear that for many of us, when it comes to these disciplines, we just don't have our minds and hearts straight on it. We need this. This is the life source of our life and faith. There is no moving beyond it. And listen, I'll end with this. I just want to tell you what I want for us. I want for us to be a people who have helpful counsel to give to others. I want our kids to come to us with their problems and not just their friends who don't know anything either, right? Like their friends know nothing. Their friends are morons. I want our kids to come to us, right? I want our kids to believe that we are smarter and have it more together and have some of the answers that their friends don't have. Not only that, I want us to be the type of people who cause our neighbors to turn their heads, who cause our neighbors to shoot a double take, to be known as a person of joy and peace and kindness and goodness, of love and gentleness and self-control, a person who looks like our Savior, Jesus. And all of that is available to you if you would just abide. Let me pray for you. Father, uh, thankful that these words are true, that uh, if we abide in you, you will abide in us, that you are the true vine and we can't do anything apart from you. Uh, Father, I just want to pray that that would be a reality for our church this morning, that as we go from here, that you would give us fresh vision and fresh fresh inspiration uh, to really be rooted in you to trust you and to trust the things you say and to center all of our lives on your presence and your word and that we would be a people who are distinctly marked by you. That the one thing that people would be able to say about us is that, man, they are with Jesus. They are with Jesus. So, Father, I don't know how that needs to look for the majority of us in terms of how we need to engage in these practices practically, but, God, I pray that you would help us to see clearly how we may do it and then give us the the decisiveness and the discipline to actually do it. And we're just going to need your Spirit's help for all of that, and so I'm just praying that you would. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. And it's your name we pray. Amen.